Psalm chapter 16, here we have before us a psalm that attests to true and everlasting joy. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. They are the ones in whom is all of my delight. And the sorrows of those who run after another God, they shall multiply those sorrows. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor will I take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot, my inheritance. Those lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is to say, to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now turning with me to the Gospel of John chapter 15 for our New Testament Scripture reading. It's a passage we read at least in part a few weeks ago. We return to it. Because Paul's analogy that we have in our sermon text this morning concerns that of fruit-bearing. And here Jesus tells us that he is the vine, the one to whom we as the branches are to be attached. And our Father, working by the Spirit, is the great vine dresser who prunes us that we might bear fruit. This morning we'll read the first 11 verses, but I want you to take particular note of the purpose of these things as we find in verse 11. Beginning in verse 1, it's our Lord Himself speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. He's the great gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, so that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean, quite literally, already you are pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. How is the Father glorified? In this way, that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And now here we are in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you for a purpose, 
that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And now our sermon text this morning, simple verse, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And against such things as joy, there is no law. But differently, joy is not against the law. Let's go before the Lord as we pray and ask that He opens our eyes to understand what Paul means by this. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for Your Word as we consider and contemplate the great task that Your Spirit has been put to work in causing us to bear fruit. We ask that by Your Word You would prune our hearts, You would convict us of sin, and that You would cause us to see the joy that is found in Christ our Savior. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the early 20th century, the great Baltimore journalist H.L. Mencken once defined Puritanism as this, the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. I think it's a sucker punch to Presbyterians everywhere as we are really heirs of the Puritan tradition. Perhaps there's a ring of truth to it. It certainly feels that way if you read any of the short stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne. How many of us have graced the doors of a dour church? You walk in and you think to yourself, who died this morning? Certainly seems to be the characteristic of some of the devout, and I think it raises an important question that we have to ask ourselves. Is Christianity a gloomy religion? Uh, Is the litmus test for true spirituality measured by the frown on your face? We find in our passage this morning that Paul gives a resounding negative to that question. Joy is not against the law. Search the law codes. Search the Bible. You will not find a prohibition against joy. In fact, we'll find just the opposite, that joy is an evidence that the Spirit is at work in our hearts. It is the produce of the Spirit's great horticultural activity as He prunes and tends to our hearts that we might bear fruit Enjoy, Just as a blueberry farmer labors to produce a crop of blueberries, so the Spirit tends to prune our hearts that we might bear fruit into lasting joy. So I think we do well this morning to consider this one thing, the question of joy, and how it's distinct from other ways which we might hear of joy. I think to do so is by going to Scripture itself to see how Scripture describes joy. I think we'd do well to consider this under two different vantage points. First, we'll consider the true earthly joys that our Lord has given. And secondly, I'd like us to consider those greater heavenly joys that have been given to us through the work secured by Christ on the cross. So two points, earthly joys and heavenly joys. I think you'd be surprised by how much the term and the concept joy permeates the Bible. I decided uh, this week to do a word study of uh, the term joy and all of its different cognates, joy in its noun form, uh, in its adverbial form, joyful, joyfully, and uh, joy even in its verbal form, to rejoice or to enjoy. 
And simply by looking at these and related words such as delight, gladness, and pleasure, I was surprised to find, in, uh, as I exported all those passages from my uh, word study program on my computer to find, I was given about 30 pages of single-spaced material. Joy permeates the Bible all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament. From Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, it is given with notes of resounding joy. I think if we were to, to collate all these passages of joy, something I tried to do this week to, to wrap my head around what is it that the Bible is trying to tell us about joy, we are given at least five, maybe six different categories in which the Bible speaks of joy. I think we'd be surprised that joy is not something that is simply restricted to believers, but it is a great gift that the Lord has bestowed upon his entire creation. We see this in the opening passages of Genesis itself, and this leads us to our first category of earthly joy, that of the world. You read Genesis chapter 1, and as there is this rhythm to the six days of creation, the end of every day is accented by the same joyful note. The Lord saying what? The Lord looking back on the events of the day and the things that he has made, and he says, behold, it is good. It is delightful. It is pleasing. In fact, it resounds in this crescendo that the, at the end of his work week, he looks back on the sixth day at all that he has made, including man, and he says, behold, not only is it good, it's very good. And then the Lord rests. Because the Lord's tired, he is God, he is in no need of sleep. The rest there is intended to communicate an enjoyment in one's labors. The Lord sets aside, and even in the creation way, uh, week, sets apart one day that he might enjoy rest from the labors he has done and establishes a pattern for mankind to follow. What we see is when the Lord makes man, he doesn't put man in a sterile office with the buzzing white lights hanging overhead. He places man in a garden, a garden filled with all those delightful things, everything that man has been given to enjoy, a garden which the book of Ezekiel tells us is located on the side of a mountain. Now, it's me speaking as a Florida boy, but I don't think there's anything that gives me greater joy than seeing mountains. I'm sick of flat land. You imagine a garden placed on the side of the mountain where you get to enjoy communion with the living God day in and day out. I think this reminds us of the purpose of creation. The world attests to the creative power of Him who is invisible. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God, and later on in that chapter, the psalm describes that glory as a man who has just left the bridal chamber on the night of his wedding, and he shouts with joy at the new life into which he has entered. It's a picture of joy. The psalmist in Psalm 8 says, when I consider the sun, the moon, and the stars, it leads to a shout of acclamation and joy. Who, who, who am I that you would care for me? Blessed be the God who is magnificent in all of his works. Psalm 36 tells us that the Lord formed the mountains to communicate something to us, that we might apprehend his righteousness and his goodness. You see, creation has been given as a picture of joy. 
the things of this world are good things. Psalm 104, the, wine, the, the food and the wine of every harvest are given to make man's heart glad. The psalmist describes joy as an intoxicating, an inebriating happiness. He has given us wine to gladden the heart of man. God made the world to bring us joy. He causes the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. Whether you might be hiking the Pacific Coast Trail, riding through the Redwoods, skiing Mount Hood, watching the sunset on Cannon Beach, or playing on the back porch with your dog, or saving the, savoring the perfect steak, all these are good gifts that our Lord has given us that we might delight in Him. These are good created things that attest to the goodness of the keeper of the Willamette Valley. And yet we find the world is not the only harbinger of joy in the Scriptures. We find also a second category, that of wisdom. Wisdom begets joy. Joy leads us to wisdom, and they all lead us to praise. It is the wise son who gladdens the father's heart. It is foolishness that crushes a, man's bo- uh, a mother's bones. That's what the Proverbs tell us. Wisdom brings joy. Here, wisdom should not be thought of as winning the latest uh, Jeopardy tournament. Wisdom is rather, in Proverbs, compared to, to the skill of an artisan, the skill of a great musician or sculptor or painter. There's a real skill involved. There's a real artistry involved, and wisdom is to be likened to that. But the one who learns how to live the good life, who begins his life in wisdom in fearing the Lord all of his days, such is the starting point of wisdom. Not attaining a PhD in philosophy. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, and it brings great joy because you learn what it means to love one another and to love the Lord. It is the wise ruler that makes the nation shout for joy as the king establishes righteousness and peace in the land. The Lord himself is said to delight in wisdom. In Proverbs 8, he harnessed wisdom. It is what he used at the creation day that he might delight in the works that he has made, and he seeks after the man who delights in wisdom, that the Lord may set his joy upon the wise. Not just the world, not just the wisdom uh, of, that's found in fearing the Lord, but also weddings. God made marriage as an institution of joy. Contrary to popular opinion, marriage is not a necessary evil, as some even within the history of the church have said. Rather, it is a great good. Even as the Lord called his whole creation very good, he looks down and he says that of everything that is very good, there is still one thing that is not good. What was that? Is that that man should be alone. So what does the Lord do? He knocks Adam out. And then he knocks Adam, he knocks the socks off Adam, if Adam had socks. Sets Adam up on a blind date. What's Adam's response when he wakes up from his sleep? So we heard last week, the Charles Williams translation, hubba hubba. This is Adam's response to the Lord's kindness to him. It's not just in the garden. In Deuteronomy, 
The Lord himself gives the command to every male soldier. On your wedding day, you're not to report back to duty for one year. Not even desk detail. Deuteronomy 24.5, you're to be charged with no duty. Why? So you could stay home and give joy to the wife whom you have taken. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Solomon commands husbands to take joy in their wives even up to old age. There's a whole book of the Bible that so many Christians don't know what to do with, the Song of Songs, because it's all about romantic longing and marital bliss. But it reminds us that weddings and families are good gifts that bring real joy. It's one of the great pictures of the Lord's salvation among the prophets. And even in the historical narratives, the great sign of the coming deliverance is what? That the Lord makes the barren woman give birth. He places the orphans and the solitary in homes. It's a sign of great joy. It's not just weddings and families that bring joy, but also warfare and warriors. It might sound kind of surprising. Of course, we don't mean war for its own sake. But I'd encourage you this week to go home, you know, for those of you who are history aficionados, to go home and look at the pictures that were taken on VE Day at the end of World War II. What's everybody doing in Europe when the war is over? They are dancing in the streets. They are celebrating. Read any good epic series, see any good epic movie, be it Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or what have you. How do these series end? Good triumphs over evil. It's a great cataclysmic war, and evil is finally overthrown. Righteousness is established in the land, and the people can now breathe in safety, and it causes great joy. How can you not rejoice? When we read our way through the Old Testament, there's all these cacophonies of joy as Pharaoh's army is drowned in the sea as Egypt pursues Israel to re-enslave a nation that has finally been set free. The Lord himself comes as the divine warrior and, and snuffs out Egypt's army. David's militaries bring a resounding shout of joy leading up to his own coronation. When Solomon exceeds the throne in 1 Kings chapter 1, The whole nation erupts into such joy, it says that the earth trembles and quakes and causes those who had tried to assassinate Solomon to tremble and quake. Great shouts of joy. Reminds us even in earthly joys, I think there's a real joy to be found in a a healthy patriotism. So long as it does not become our chief joy, as we are reminded that we are citizens the heavenly kingdom. Just war establishes peace. And so, when the Lord is victorious in the Old Testament, there is great joy. And leads us to one final category that we see in terms of these earthly joys, and it is even that of worship. When we read of worship in the Old Testament, joy is a key feature. Worship produces joy. Joy leads to worship. It's this ongoing cycle. Even the the Sabbath, the day in which Israel is called to assemble together in worship, is seen as a day of great joy. Right? I know Sabbatarianism has fallen on tough times these days, probably because people who want to keep it look very dour. And yet when you read the Old Testament, we're reminded that the fourth commandment has been given for our great good. What is the command? Stop working. 
that you might rest and delight in your Creator and Redeemer. Use this day to lift the burdens of your brothers. Delight yourself in the Lord. So many people think of that and go, how mean? How does that mean? You know, uh, there's a real fear that we have. You know, we legalism is a great evil. What is legalism? Is when we try to justify ourselves by convincing the Lord that we are better than we really are based off our own works. We are not justified by our own works, but by faith in Christ. And yet, that does not mean that the law is bad. Paul goes to great lengths in Romans and Galatians to tell us this. Right? If you find the command not to murder to be a buzzkill, perhaps the problem is not the law. If the prohibition against sexual immorality reigns on your parade, it is not God's law that's the problem. The law is intended to give us the boundaries that show us where true joy lies. True joy lies in not transgressing those things and seeking to love our neighbor as ourselves, and seeking to uphold the proper bounds of marriage. And this is why the psalmist will say over and over again, you read the longest psalm uh, in the Psalter, what is it? It's Psalm 119. And what is the focus? It is on the law of the Lord. And it's not the psalmist saying the law of the Lord is oppressive and burdensome. It says what? The law of the Lord is my delight. It is God's law that brings joy. It is God's word that brings joy. And it is God's presence that brings joy. Not just a half-baked joy. We feel kind of happy some of the time. As we heard earlier in Psalm 16, in your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. C.S. Lewis defines praise and worship as this, that praise is the mode of love, which always has some element of joy in it. Um, for those of you who are married, consider the, those times you went home to tell your folks, your friends, about the girl you just started dating. You didn't have to really pry it out of them. It just kind of bubbled up. It bubbled over. There's just an element of joy in talking about that. So too is the nature of worship. What is the first question to our shorter catechism? How does it begin? What is man's chief end? What is his ultimate glorious purpose in life? Is we might, that we might glorify God and what? Enjoy Him forever starting point to instruction in the faith begins with the joy that is found in the Lord. And so we find that joy is not merely a key feature of worship, but is in fact a command. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, Paul tells the church of Philippi. Over and over again we hear the shouts of acclamation and the imperative to shout for joy, O ye righteous. Why? Because the Lord comes to establish justice in the earth. This is not a flippant joy. It does not mean you have to slap on a fake smile. We find, in fact, if you read the bulk of the Psalms, most of them don't sound particularly joyful. Most are what we would call Psalms of lament. And yet we find that joy, the future prospect, 
of the joy of the everlasting kingdom becomes the very hope that motivates and fuels and sustains us through the valley of tears. One of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, um, Baptist minister in Ohio, puts it something like this. He says, joy is not something that is manufactured like a Christmas ornament. What do you do with your fake Christmas trees? You put an ornament on it. You don't expect your fake Christmas, Christmas tree to grow fruit. If you do, I, you know, I can sell you some AstroTurf and tell you to start watching it grow. Right? These things do not produce fruit on their own. Joy is not something that is manufactured, that is just tacked on. Rather, joy is a fruit that is produced. It is organic. And like with any plant, the fruit might start off small. It might take actual time before you see it blossom and bud. But it takes pruning and great attention and care. One of the things that we need to realize is that these five categories that Scripture gives, these five W's, right? I tried to make it as easy to remember the world, weddings, wisdom, warfare, and worship. These are great earthly joys. When I say warfare, of course, I mean the triumph over evil. These are real joys. Nearly all, every instance of joy in the Bible uses the language of joy in these categories. So I think Bible, the Bible is trying to tell us something about joy. These are joys that are in some way common to all mankind. The unbeliever grasps them. He understands them at least in part. And yet these joys, as good as they are, are fleeting. Doesn't matter how bountiful the harvest, the resources are always depleted. Right? Sin has marred wisdom's true purpose so that so many pursue philosophy all of one's life and they still fail to attain the very thing that they hope would bring them joy. Right? Who doesn't love a good wedding reception? And yet we find that every marriage ends in a tragedy. Be it through divorce, or more commonly, through death. Even the wisest of kings of this earth die. Even uh, the greatest, most noble empires of this world are soon corrupted. Just read the book of Daniel. Come back this evening as David preaches on that. So you're reminded that even though there are these great earthly joys of creation, Adam, by his one act of transgression, plunged the whole human race into an estate of sin and misery. Something that runs contrary to joy. So now all these earthly joys, as good as they are, are fleeting. Joy is now commingled with sorrow. We now find that the human race pursues these fading joys like a druggie held bent on his next fix. Even the greatest earthly joys can now become great demons. A husband abandons his wife to satiate his lusts. The glutton makes good food his God. The drunkard abandons self-control and is in pursuit of that everlasting buzz. The soldier no longer fights for honor to defend the things that he loves or the people that he loves, but rather he becomes a soldier of fortune a mercenary in pursuit of money and power. 
See, Romans 1 tells us the plight of the human race is that mankind now pursues these created things, forgetting the source of these earthly joys. Man has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. He now worships these created goods rather than the, creation, rather than the Creator Himself. The earthly joys have become no longer, not simply fleeting, but now the human heart holds in it the very capacity to turn these earthly goods into idols. And yet we find that amidst our own sin and our own treachery, the own evil and wickedness of our hearts, where we can even turn the best of the created goods into great evils. We have a God who is so good, He subverts these things and turns them for our glory and for our everlasting joy. This is why we speak of the Christian message as the gospel. What does that word mean? It means glad tidings. Joyous news. We cannot forget that the Christian message is a message of joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. It is a hymn that is not only to be sung at Christmas. Here we find that all these earthly joys that God has given, as described in the Old Testament, now shape our hearts for something that is more lasting. If you, look, if you were to look at... Uh, um, various artworks, and you were to look at somebody's sketchbook of Paris or of London, and you think, how beautiful are these drawings? You'd want to give them good news that there's something that's even more beautiful that awaits, that it's simply an imprint, a sketch of a better world, a lasting or a real city, right? You think this painting of the Eiffel Tower is great. Let's show you the real thing. You think this drawing of Westminster Abbey is beautiful. Let me take you to the city of London. Such is the case with these earthly joys. Hebrews 11 tells us that the testimony of the saints tells, it attests that these earthly things only give us a thumbnail, a sketchbook of the great heavenly joys that are to come. Even as the old world gives us earthly joys, Hebrews tells us that Christ has ushered in a new world by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension on high. That all who are in Christ are now part of the new creation. That there is a new heaven and a new earth that awaits. A world which will be consummated on the day of Christ's return where all, where all sighing and sorrow will flee away forever. It is a picture of joy. Even as Christ ascends on high, He gives His Spirit as the guarantee of this new world to come and now calls us no longer to be intoxicated with wine, but what? To be filled and intoxicated with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, how is that done? How is this intoxication of the Spirit manifested? What's manifested in the singing of songs? A friend of mine is an ethics professor in the Midwest, and when he teaches his class on Christian ethics, he reminds his students that you can never have any true discussion, any full discussion of Christian ethics without talking about singing. Because we are called to sing for joy and to make melody in our hearts. It is a picture of great joy. Christ himself is said to be our wisdom. 
one who is wiser than Solomon, one who freely gives wisdom not only to the eggheads, but to anyone who asks. As he opens our eyes to our sin and gives us great joy in the forgiveness of sins, that's why I think Mencken gets it wrong. Puritanism is not a frumpy form of Christianity. This is the Puritans who said that it is the forgiveness of sins that is the Christian's chief happiness and joy. Scripture depicts this joyous salvation as a wedding. Again, see how the Lord uses these earthly pictures of joy to show us more substantive, to show us something more lasting. You think weddings are good? Isaiah chapter 61 Isaiah says, He has clothed me with garments of salvation, these garments to be compared as a bridegroom who decks himself with a garland on his wedding day, or a bride who adorns herself with jewels. What is the very first miracle that Jesus performs? He brings the goods to a wedding, turns water to wine. Fitting, isn't it? to point out that the very starting point of Jesus' earthly ministry is to depict the great joy that he is ushering in through his work that was accomplished on the cross. The salvation is secured by a divine warfare where at the cross Christ disarmed Satan and his cronies and has made us his own. Wickedness has been overthrown. Righteousness is being established throughout the earth. So as we've considered the shape of uh, uh, what Scripture says, giving us and describing to us the nature of joy, I think there are three things that we ought to consider. The first is this, that even unbelievers have been given a glimmer of real joy. We should not diminish this. Why is it that so many Oregonians love the outdoors? Because creation offers a real delight. And yet, the purpose of these created things, these earthly joys, are to point us to the source of joy. And this is where so many of our friends and neighbors have fallen short. And yet, we can use these discussions. We can use this to point to the real source of joy. C.S. Lewis's autobiography he tells how he came to saving faith, what's the title of the book? Surprised by logical argumentation? No, it's surprised by joy. You read the end of Pilgrim's Regress. You read the end until we have faces. You read the Chronicles of Narnia. Joy is central to Lewis's understanding of the Christian life. More so than rational debates, the Spirit works joy in our hearts to give people a taste of a more lasting joy that is to be found in God and God alone. If joy is a fruit that is produced, then the joy should arise in uh, in our hearts to be a fruit that causes those around us to taste and see the Lord's goodness. Joy is itself a Christian apologetic. Second thing, heavenly joy is more lasting than fleeting joy. 
Heavenly joy is an objective reality. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Christ endured the cross. Why did He do so? Why did He undergo such misery, such anxiety, such depression, such shame? What well, says that Christ endured the cross because of the joy that was set before Him? Joy is not simply some fleeting fancy that comes and goes with the passing of the tide. Paul describes the kingdom of God as a kingdom, not of food or drink, good as those things are, but as a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. And Christ, knowing that on the other side of the cross and the grave stood an empty tomb where He would rise from the dead and receive an everlasting inheritance as He would ascend on high and inherit the throne and the kingdom of God and so establish a kingdom of joy. It is objective. It is real. It is true. And so this joy is given to the people of God by the Spirit to sustain us in the midst of our sorrow. Like a sunbeam that is sent to dispel the clouds. The clouds might be there, but behind the dark clouds still sits a sun. Third thing to consider, this joy is produced and not manufactured. It'd be so easy to turn this sermon into yet another guilt trip. Why I stand up here and beat my fist on the pulpit and tell you, you need to be more joyful. But I think that would miss the point altogether. Because this joy is not something that we can conjure up on our own. This is something that is produced supernaturally by the Spirit. And it is something that bears fruit increasingly in due season. And so we might ask ourselves, why is there not as much joy in my life as I wish there would be? Which I think is something we, would, we all struggle with. I'm not speaking as one who has arrived. But I do think there are two main questions to consider. And what is it that obstructs our joy? The first would be that of sin. Are you trying to find lasting joy in transgression? Are you trying to find lasting joy in illicit sexual relationships? If so, do not be surprised by the lack of joy in your life. Right? The pleasures of sin are counterfeit joys. You keep pursuing them thinking they'll give you joy and that, that even the, the, the earthly pleasure finds its resources being depleted and depleted and depleted. The Spirit has to work in your heart to prune those things that are choking out the Word. Jesus compares the pleasures of this life as thorns that inhibit you from proper fruit-bearing. So we have to ask ourselves, is there sin in my life that obstructs joy? And yet there's a second thing to consider. If the first problem is that of sin in my own life, and so there are things that I need to do, the second thing we have to recognize is that we're also thrust into an estate of misery where there's some things that are not our fault. There are things that we suffer under that have nothing to do with our own sin. We live in a fallen world where we're subject to so many miseries that have been brought upon us. 
So many afflictions that we face are not our fault at all. But just because there are those real sorrows does not mean that there cannot be lasting joys. This is why James himself will say, count it all joy when you suffer various trials. Just because there is sorrow and sadness in your life does not mean that there cannot be joy. Joy is that great hope that though there are dark clouds, those clouds will one day dissipate because God has promised. Psalm 23, though he brings me through the, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your right hand and your staff, they comfort me. As we sing in the great hymn, Glorious Things of the Earth Spoken, it is the solid joys and the lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. These earthly joys are given to depict for us something that is more lasting, that is found through faith in Christ and Christ alone. One final point for us to consider as we think about joy, and this is, I think, Paul's main point in this passage. It is okay to be joyful. Religiosity is not found in being dour. You check the law codes of the Old Testament Read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's some tough reading, admittedly. But there's no prohibition against joy to be found in any of the passages of Scripture. I'm not calling for flippancy. I only mean to say this, that the sour face is not proof of one's spiritual maturity. In fact, it might be just the opposite. Because the Lord has given us His Spirit to work joy in our hearts, to prune our hearts, that we might sing forth the glorious praises of He who has called us out of darkness and has forgiven us of our sins. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the joy that is to be found in the kingdom of God. We ask that You would so prune our hearts of the sins that obstruct true joy. And that even as we go through trials and hardships, you would give us a joy that surpasses understanding and circumstance. That we would set our hopes on even those things before the crosses that we bear. Knowing that you will deliver us one day. As we look forward to that day when all sighing and sorrow will flee away. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.